Welcome to Episcopal Priest Explains. I'm Kyle Martindale, and I'm your resident Episcopal Priest. Today, as we kick off the podcast in the midst of Pride Month, we're going to talk about LGBTQ plus inclusion in the Episcopal Church, the Church more broadly, and in communities and society at large. Today, I'll be bringing in the Right Reverend Mary D. Glasspool, Bishop Assistant in the Episcopal Diocese of New York, to help us through some of this and clarify whatever I'm about to mess up when I take my crack at explaining. It's Episcopal Priest Explains. I might not know much about much, but I'm here to talk about stuff. For when your friends ask you questions and you want to show off, the first five minutes likely aren't enough. Because I'm going to be wrong, and I'll ask someone smarter. So that first five minutes are more just like a starter. So you can stick around and hear from the experts, because there's more to know from Episcopal Priest Explains. It's Episcopal Priest Explains. Again, thanks for joining us today on Episcopal Priest Explains as we discuss LGBTQ plus inclusion. We'll be joined very shortly by Bishop Mary Glasspool, Bishop Mary. But first, I'm going to try to share some of what I think the historical trajectory of LGBTQ plus inclusion in the Episcopal Church has been without getting too deep into the weeds to where Bishop Mary can't pull us out. So I'll dive right in. And I remember one of my seminary classes, I think ethics, but perhaps it was something else, the General Convention of the Episcopal Church, which for those of you in the church, you might know what this is. For those of you in or out of the church, this is the triennial governing conference in the church. And it's, they commissioned a group of people to explore human sexuality in the 1970s. Until then, while the Episcopal Church could at sometimes be more inclusive than many other conservative religious organizations, there was really no work done to say that the church believed God's love to be inclusive and that it would mirror itself as the church off of that love. Anyway, back to the 1970s, where there was this group working on exploring how, how our theology might be led by the Holy Spirit to expand and grow to include LGBTQ plus persons. And then there was also a group, well, pretty much a conservative caucus in the church whose position was that things should stay the same and the understanding of God's love and the question of sexuality and what is a sin and all sorts of other questions can't even be addressed, pretty much ever. They took up this ultra-defensive stance that basically refused the idea that anything about our understanding of God can change which is a pretty interesting viewpoint as we follow a radical Jesus whose ideas of inclusion and love stepped all over the toes of the religious of his day, so much so that he was martyred as a political and religious martyr. And we've seen constant changes in our understanding of God's love and God's grace for the past 2,000 years since. That brick wall of a viewpoint kept things from changing for a long time in the church. But while this caucus just repeated the same argument, the side looking for inclusive love in the church kept doing the work. Eventually, when things really started to change, an unfortunate schism took place in the Episcopal Church that still has effects today. 
There were several big events throughout this time, before this time, woven through this time and presently, but I'll let our guest share a little bit more about those as we get, begin our conversation. But a conclusion to the saga I've just been speaking about came about over the last two decades, somewhat, when the church first approved the election of its first and then subsequent LGBTQ plus bishops and eventually approved same-sex marriage in the church officially in 2015 and strengthening that stance and theological viewpoint in 2018 which will be our topic next time with Father Bill Baker, who is a priest in the Diocese of New York on Staten Island. So now you've heard my rough explanation, if you will, of LGBTQ plus inclusion in the Episcopal Church. Now I'm going to bring in our guest, Bishop Mary, Bishop Assistant in the Episcopal Diocese of New York since 2016, Suffragan Bishop of the Diocese of Los Angeles from 2010, elected in 2009, uh, until that time, and she was ordained a deacon in 1981 in New York and a priest in 1982 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Bishop Glasspool, welcome, and I want to also note that you and I both share something, and we're both children of priests, correct? Correct, and uh, Kyle, if I may begin by just thanking you for undertaking this um, enterprise of doing podcasts and having an Episcopal priest engage in explanations for people who may still need to hear the story. I love uh, the questions that you wrote out in preparation for this time together and um, building on what you just noted in terms of something that we share, a characteristic that we share. Um, you asked can you share a little bit about how you came to the Episcopal Church? Well, as you know, it uh, we were you and I were both sort of born into the Episcopal Church with fathers who were Episcopal priests, which uh, in today's world is something of a rarity. Um, my my father at the time of my birth was in Staten Island, where you will go next week to. Uh, have a conversation with Bill Baker. Um, he was, at that time, rector of All Saints, or Saint, maybe St. Simon's, and vicar of the other. It was a, a combination, a, a yoked parish mission. Um, but I grew up at St. James Episcopal Church in Goshen, New York. And um, so... Being sort of in the church and the Episcopal Church in particular and having that structure in my uh, primary, my family of origin, mm -hmm. um, was just something of a given. Uh, and I was perhaps one of those rare priest kids who um, didn't rebel against the church. I, I wrestled with it and wrestled throughout and have wrestled throughout my entire life, um, particularly with the issues around sexuality. But it's it's I I, I think um, thanks be to God uh, and God's own grace um, that I've loved the church all my life. Mm -hmm. And I and I joke about the Episcopal Church um, as kind of the the family business. So 
Absolutely. As, as children of, of priests, and uh, there's many terms for what you and I are. I know a lot of people use the term PK as preacher's kid. I have a uh, friend from back in Nebraska, where I came from, that uses TO, theological offspring. <laughs> Uh, and That's just great. use that as maybe a, I don't know if it's a more inclusive, I don't know why they use the term, but it's just kind of a, <laughs> people get tired of hearing PK. And so TO is, is what we use. And, and uh, for those of you joining us that aren't children of clergy, you may not understand this bond that Bishop Mary and I are sharing right now, because when you're young, and, and my father didn't become a priest until I was eight years old, um, but until that time, uh, we were moving around. I was born an army brat. Uh, and so there's a little bit of movement, and it's similar to what uh, priests early in their careers do often um, because, you know, you get, get out of seminary and you do a job for a few years and then you find, find the next thing. But um, you don't have an option of where you're going to be on Sunday morning when your parent is the priest. That's right. That's right. Uh, and, and everything involved in the church, you already know when that church calendar hits that that is your personal calendar, and you will be at everything because that's expected of you. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and and uh, in in neighborhoods like the village of Goshen, which is the county seat of Orange County, again, in the Diocese of New York, was a small village when mm-hmm. I was uh, growing up. And the dominant um, religious denomination was Roman Catholic. Uh, they were mostly immigrants, Polish and Italian uh, immigrants. And they couldn't understand what a PK was because their clergy were celibate, mm-hmm. not married, without kids. So it was really a challenge to be a PK and to explain what that was. So PK a.k.a. T.O. <laughs> we could go on with the acronyms. But it's hard to be the only one in town, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you. What, what kept you in the church? I mean, I know you said you struggled. You, you didn't rebel. Uh, and that's also something that we're at least notorious as children of, of clergy as rebellious. And so we'll go and be agnostic or atheist or something right. for a while. And often we find our way back uh, to a faith that, that we've defined a little bit yeah. instead of having it defined for us. Exactly. Um, but you didn't have that where you rebelled fully away from the church. But what kept you grounded to the church and, and driven by the church? You know, I don't know how to answer that in in concrete terms, and it I hope it doesn't sound like a not a dismissive thing, but a but a kind of a, a, the love of God kept me in the church. It wasn't anything I felt I did, either for myself or for anybody else. In fact, because my father, who was very conservative in his um I think he was more middle of the road in his theology, but he was not supportive of women's ordination and I Mm. think would have been classified. He always liked to talk about himself as a traditionalist, capital T, please. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, by that, I think he meant also conservative. So um, we had a rough relationship during the times when I was discerning 
where what in in retrospect I would say God's call, my vocation, um, and a lot of that discernment happened when I was in college, but when I was discerning, uh, uh, there was a particular point in time when because of my difficult relationship with my father, I thought there are two things that I could do to get his attention in a kind of, um, you know, stabbing kind of way. I could be a priest or a prostitute. And, and nothing uh, in between. That, well, those were the two options that I thought would really get to him. Um, probably in equal measure, <laughs> but that, but you know, the, 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 the saving grace of God said to me, some voice said to me, you know, if you make this decision about your life based on how to best get at your father, you will be miserable the rest of your life, no matter which you choose. Um, so that turned me to try and take some responsibility for decisions I was making about my life, which, God bless him, my father would say, I would say, well, it's my life, I'll, I'll determine what I do with it. And, and my father would say, you know, it's not really your life, it's God's life. You're part of God's life, and you need to be respectful there. You're part of a larger picture. You're part of a whole. You're part of a community. And so taking that very seriously, I was discerning, I think, in the context of a larger community. Wonderful. Thank you. And and may I just say, I'm glad you chose the priest, but I'm also <laughs> glad you chose it, uh, chose it in terms of what you were going to. The, the way I frame that... Um, uh, when I'm asked about these similar things, uh, if, if it's, you know, you have to wait to answer that call until you're going to something rather than going from something. You're right. going to that love of God, as you described, rather than running from that tense relationship exactly. or tense situation. Uh, and that makes all the difference. It's a it choosing sure rather than a forcing. Exactly. Well said, Kyle. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing well, sharing sure. that. <laughs> uh, and uh, so now I'd, I'd love us to, you know, we, you heard, heard my explanation uh, that was very brief and very kind of a fast track through time, uh, if you will. But it, in your, I, I know some of the, the points that I said are, are correct, but where did the church, the Episcopal Church, begin its work to include more fully LGBTQ plus persons in the life of the church, uh, and what did that things look like before that happened? Uh, knowing that the work began a long time ago, but what were some of the things that were done over time to get to that point where the church even named it and, and said we need to do this? Right. It's a great question, and I have to begin my response by saying I think in just about every respect, it's tied to women's ordination. And um, in 1970, or might have been 1969, um, the church almost passed women's ordination. It missed by one vote. Uh, and... Uh, between 1970 and 1973, the conservative opposition to 
ordaining women as priests rose. In other words, it came so close. There, in, in the late 1960s, there was a woman named Phyllis Edwards who was ordained a deaconess. I know that people listening can't see me doing the air quotes, but... I can attest to the fact that she is. Um, you know, she was... Phyllis Edwards was ordained deaconess because, uh, you know, if if it's not okay to ordain a woman a deacon, um, then we'll create a different category and uh, make it based on gender and ordain her a deaconess. And um, I think that kind of was a hallmark of why can't women be ordained priests? Um, Women were gradually being admitted to the Episcopal Church's seminaries, uh, could clearly um, do the thing, you know, clearly had the brains to do the theological uh, mind work and the hearts to do the love and pastoring and all of that, which now seems obvious, but in the late 1960s and early 1970s, it wasn't, uh, or at least it wasn't to the structures of the institutional church. Which were completely dominated by men because women couldn't... They were all men, right? They weren't invited to the party. Exactly. And, uh, you know, if you took in, in 1970, for example, which I think was the first general convention where a woman deputy... Uh, was admitted, Um, you know, as you say, it was all men. There were all men on the vestry, all men uh, at the altar, all boy acolytes. Um, My father, even in the 70s and 1980s, never had girl acolytes. They were were all boys. Um, So we were following an all-male priesthood, and uh, Jesus's 12... Apostles were all men, and and there were arguments that were made based on that supposed objective fact um, uh, that that kind of provided the conservative viewpoint of uh, a gender specific and gender um, monopoly on leadership in the church. Completely forgetting the fact that Mary, Jesus's mother, was the first one who believed in in Jesus, and then Mary Magdalene was the first one to proclaim the resurrection. Exactly, exactly. You know, you ask about. I mean, it's interesting to ask about the 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 church's move toward inclusion. Inclusion was not a word common in the ecclesiastical vocabulary during the 1970s. Uh, I'm not sure. I didn't do a, an etymology of the word inclusion in terms of its usage in Episcopal church um, conversations, but uh, it, it's a relatively recent term in terms of um, what what has been happening in the Episcopal church. But first... We had the fight over women's ordination, and and perhaps that's a story that I just tag and put aside. You know, the the Philadelphia Eleven were irregularly, again, air quotes, irregularly ordained in Philadelphia, July 29th, nineteen seventy nine. Um, nineteen 
1974, excuse me, 1974, and then the Washington Five in 1975, and then in 1976 with General Convention meeting in Minneapolis, the um, women's ordination and the changing of pronouns or the resolution that said the pronoun he shall also be interpreted as she in the canons of the church um, made the first cut in 1976, as did the um, revision of the prayer book. See, during the 1970s, we were revising the prayer book, which also was an instrument in helping us um, look through different lenses at the theology, at the ecclesiastical church, at the liturgies of the church, at what we were proclaiming as our beliefs, at the catechism of the church, at the identity of the Episcopal church. And if you lived through the 70s, I mean, one of my lived experiences is that, uh, you know, that the, the decade, the 1970s, the decade of prayer book revisions saw the green book, the zebra book, the blue book, and finally the 1979 prayer book, um, which was, I think, a little more than a revision of the 1928 prayer book. It, w- it was a complete overhaul. Well, and it reoriented the theology of the church and redefined, exactly. you know... It, the, those of you who are listening who who remember the 1929 prayer book, you know, there may be a few of you, um, but we had to have confirmation was required for communion in the 1929 prayer book. The language was all male dominant. And so there was that 10 year conversation. And we again find ourselves in what's now like a 15 year conversation about prayer books that's never going to end um, in the Episcopal Church. But so this, these, what you're saying is these are all linked discussions and, and, and kind of right now I'm listening to a lot on, on uh, physics right now and, and, and quantum physics. And so these things were bouncing off of each other and gaining momentum as the decade wore on is, you know, the, the conversation of women's and, and women's ordination and its opposition. So as the conversation grew, so did the opposition. Exactly. And uh, and so, you know, once women's ordination was uh, made official, and this is interesting because you brought up the 1970, um, that you, you brought up the date 1970 in terms of general convention and the perhaps a, a beginning point, somewhat arbitrary, but a beginning point for the church's movement towards inclusion of all God's children. Uh, You know, I I see it, again, as connected to women's ordination. Once, um, and and we we can see, I think, relatively easily, the connection to the church's conversation about, and believe me, in the 1970s, no one was saying, LGBTQ plus. Oh, of course, yes. So in the in the 1970s, it was homosexuality. I mean, we didn't even use the word lesbian to talk about women who were gay. It was homosexuality, and the and the larger world debate was on whether or not homosexuality was 
uh, you know, according to the American Psychiatric Association, a, a kind of, what would you call it? A, a disease. A disease or a pathology a of pathology, some kind. A yeah. pathology, an aberration. Uh, and, and, you know, the theological term is abomination. And that got hurled at homosexual people a great deal, that, that we were abomination. We were an abomination to the church. Um, so that, so in, you know, when we started talking about gender, when we started fully including women, Dorothy Sayers wrote a wonderful essay on Are Women Human? Um, which just the title of it raises the question to the level of reason. You know, are we gonna, are we gonna, are, are women human? Yeah, are we saying, you know, if, if we're not if we're not saying one thing, are we saying that women aren't actually human beings? Exactly. That they don't have a brain, that they don't have a soul, that they have that somehow whatever. Um so if we look at the church's series of triennial conventions, 1970, 1973, 1976, 1979, well, the 76-79 time period was critical because in 1976, the prayer book revision got okayed and women's ordination got okayed. But because it involved changes to the Episcopal Church's constitution and canons, it had to be okayed at two consecutive general conventions. So in 1976, we set it up for the 1979 general convention that was to be held in Denver, Colorado. And what happened in a nutshell at the 1979 general convention, which I attended as a seminarian from Episcopal Divinity School was that women's ordination got a second okay, which was a given because between 1976 and 1979, having, having held back all the women who were ordained deacons until the church saw fit to make women's ordination a regular occurrence... <clears throat> Were, were ordained. So it's, it's like the toothpaste was out of the tube. You can't get to 1979 and then say, oh, no, we thought it's a bad idea. You know, because women were, were growing in number. Ordained women were growing in number. And what would the church do if suddenly in 1979 they tried to get the toothpaste back into the tube? And by that time, they're, you know, like you said, they're ordained and, you know, serving in churches and... You, you can't you can't get it back in and and kind of what you mentioned earlier about the irregular ordinations as with the air quotes um again just for those of you listening the air quotes were there for that and and that's just because it technically wasn't allowed but a bishop did it anyway and and said you know it should be allowed i'm going to ordain these humans and they are <laughs> women and we're going to celebrate that and and uh, so those big markers of recognizing that humanity and the ability to call uh, to be called by God, right? And and uh, it's good of you, Kyle, to remember that 
you know, vocational discernment was a large part of this. And, uh, and so God was a large part of this. And we were discerning or listening or trying to listen to what God was saying to the church uh, with respect to these vocations in the church. And now I'm not using air quotes because uh, they are real. God really was calling women. So at the general convention in Denver, Colorado in 1979, from a conservative point of view, what happened was the prayer book got its second constitution and canon okay. Women's ordination got its second okay. And this wonderful report from a, a standing commission on, I think, it, I think it was called health, not human sexuality. I think it was the standing commission on health and human affairs or something like that. That. that sounds right. I, I know I have it somewhere saved because I had to read it for a class, and I, I have it. I just, you know, in 2020, 2021, everything's on the computer, and so now finding the computerized stuff is twice as hard. Right, exactly. So um, it that commission was chaired by the Right Reverend Robert Spears, who was at that time Bishop of Rochester, one of the dioceses in the state of New York. And it was, it was um, very... The, the report to General Convention in Denver in 1979 was very positive. It said, homosexuals are children of God, and they deserve our support, they're children of God, and the implication and the openness of the report basically said, as children of God, they should have access to all the rights and privileges of other children of God. So now that, you know, now that we say they're children of God, they can be baptized. They can be confirmed. We weren't, we, we didn't, you know, say much about marriage at that time because we were still dealing with ordination, which is ironic because ordination is the kind of internal structural hierarchical position. Marriage is more the grassroots position. Right. Um, what, you know, the, if, if we had just accepted the report as it was written, um, I think things might have changed a lot sooner. But what happened at that 1979 general convention, in my view, and it's only my view, uh, maybe some others share it, but the conservatives said, look, we took the, you know, we got the new prayer book, you're ramming, you know, women's ordination down our throats, we will be darned if you don't give us something to take home. And they threw up opposition to uh, homosexuals being appropriate candidates for ordination. And declared as children of beloved children of God. Well, they were essence. declared as children of God, but they were blocked from, um, from ordination. So it was a a very intense 
1979 general convention then you know that right like you said there were these two massive things that came forward and were finalized with their second vote this other thing came forward and it wouldn't have needed those two votes it just kind of needed to be accepted as the report exactly and and then if that were accepted it would have led towards that inclusion i mean we use i'm using the modern language i know sure, that sure, wasn't sure. the term of of the 1970s but it would have it would have led for that um but it just that kind of obstinate we can't have everything go against us uh you you have you to gotta stop give somewhere. the conservatives something yeah. you know so i you know and i'll tell you one of my vivid memories and Remember, I was a seminary student in 1979, um, was of an open hearing that was packed to the gills in an auditorium in Denver, Colorado, wherever we were having the general convention. And you had to sign up to speak, and, and speakers were only allowed three minutes. And I think the whole hearing was two and a half, maybe three hours. And it was chaired by uh, the late John Coburn, who uh, at that time, I believe, was, if he was Bishop of Massachusetts then, I'm trying to think because he, w- he was, he had also been president of the House of Deputies as the the former rector of St. James, Madison Avenue, before he was elected bishop in Massachusetts. Um, but I think, I think that happened between 76 and 79. So he was chairing the legislative committee, not the standing committee, the Standing Commission on Health and Human Affairs, but um, the legislative committee. And what happened, the, the hearing attended by probably close to 2,000 people, Wow, was overwhelmingly supportive of um, homosexuals, of gay and lesbian people. Uh, I spoke at that hearing and, and remember it vividly. And there were only, of maybe 35 speakers, there were only one or two who spoke against it. And and so what was so disappointing was to have whatever the resolution was that came out of it that altered not only the words of, but the spirit of and the sense of um, the, the, the Standing Commission on Health and Human Affairs, this very positive report, was disappointing because it... it made clear that homosexuals were not appropriate candidates for ordained ministry. So that was a decision made from the chair of the the group that was there, kind of changed the length, you know, you said it, that the, the... It was a resolution that, uh, that passed the entire general convention. Okay. House of Deputies and House of Bishops. And it went, you know, they took the time to have this hearing and then ignored the entire hearing, basically. By well, uh, they didn't, the, the hearing maybe gave uh, a false indication. I say false. It, it certainly gave an indication of where I thought the spirit 
was moving, but the structures of the church were not ready yet to embrace that. And I have to say, I've looked at this period a lot from 1979 to 2009, a period of 30 years uh, measured in my life, because 2009 was the year in which I was elected as an openly gay, partnered, lesbian priest in the church, mm-hmm. elected bishop. Uh, it, we, were, we were talking about this almost incessantly for 30 years. Which is exhausting, it is exhausting. Uh, and you, you said you, you spoke before this, this um, chamber and, and pleaded. Were, were you out at the time that, that this happened? Well, ironically, I sort of, I, I didn't sort of, I came out in my little three-minute speech. Oh, really? And, um, you know, I remember my bishop, who at the time was the late Paul Moore, Jr., came up to me and gave me a big hug and said, well, now that you've come out to 1,500 people, do you think you ought to talk to your parents? <laughs> <laughs> so they were, my, my father was one of his priests, and I hadn't come out to my parents okay. yet. So this was the first place that you came out? Was yeah, there publicly, in front of yeah. The, to, to state your case for why you should be allowed to live as who you've been made to be and be ordained. right. Uh, I I tried not to make it a personal issue, but I, I tried to generalize it and say this is about um, homosexual, gay, and lesbian people who are beloved children of God, and it's we're we're not we're not issues. We're human beings. Um, is the way in which I said it at at the time, and. Because I used we, um, it was essentially a, a coming out statement. I wasn't ordained yet. I was a student in seminary, and I spoke as a student from Episcopal Divinity School. Wow. Mm. That takes a lot of, of courage to include the we, and you know, whether it was you know, that, that claiming, that claiming of personhood is something I see a lot of as what, you know, Pride Month is about, is that claiming of, I am a person. Uh, And so when you see things like, you know, why isn't there pride for such and such and this and that? And it's like, because you don't have to claim that you're a person. Right. um, And and a child of God, uh, you know, you, that's assumed about, about you. And, and, uh, for many, that's not the case, and and right. you had to stand up in front of fifteen hundred people as as a young woman who's in seminary. And uh, if you're in seminary or have been to seminary or are thinking about seminary, you are that whatever that bishop's response can change your whole life. Anything you do, whatever that bishop responds to it, can change your entire life. Right. Uh, and so that that courage, uh, I just want to commend you on that. Well, and, thank you. I, you know, I, I didn't actually, I didn't plan to do that, but I remember sort of trying to gear myself up to a three-minute speech, and I went to a Dunkin' Donuts and sat with a cup of coffee and 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 wrote out what I was going to say because those were the days when, in order to keep the time, they would, you know, you'd have a green light for two minutes 
or two and a half minutes and a yellow light when you were at your last 30 seconds. And when the light turned red, they cut off the microphone. So nobody would hear what you were saying if you went over three minutes. Yeah, not in that large of a room. Nobody's exactly. Hear it. It, you, you know, so I managed to finish what I was going to say before the red light cut me off. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Much more. I, I didn't realize you were at these uh, this general convention in particular in 1979. That yeah. that really was the you know there were so many things to celebrate at that, but then there's also these these painful moments, and right. I think that tension of celebration and pain is something that that we often look at, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. We talk about things happened in the church. And, and so I know that you've got the questions I sent you. I'm going to go out of order now. So I'm going off. That's script. fine. Um, That's just fine. So, uh, cause I want us to be able to keep talking about this. And I think what we often try to do as the church and, and in our lives and everywhere. And you and I spoke about this when we were first sitting down and, and chatting before we uh, hit the record button is, is we try to pretend that when things move forward, uh, when, when a decision is made one way or another, that everything is good now, that everything is fine, you know, that, that the work's been done, the decision's been made, now we can just move on. Uh, and, and we want that to be true, I think, as, because, you know, Episcopalians are just people. We, we have only so much room in our minds for tension and for stress. And so we want that truth to be there, that everything's okay now. But we know that that's untrue in most cases, and it's untrue in this case. Like you said, you, th- this part was a conversation for the next 30 years at right. least. Uh, and in some parts of the church, is still a conversation. Right. In 2000, and I th- Bishop Gene Robinson was elected in, I believe, 2003. Correct. As the first openly gay bishop in the Episcopal Church. Uh, and there was this great turmoil, and uh, at that point, some probably some of the same people that were threw up their hands at the 1979 general convention threw up their hands again and just walked out and and said okay we're starting our own thing this right. isn't the church uh, we're going to create this new thing and it's a you know a split in the church and and there were other things that happened and and death threats and things like that to Bishop Jean because he became this public figure um, not because he really chose to be a public figure but because our church became on the hot seat. Everybody was talking about the Episcopal Church. Right. And so people that didn't like this, he was a target. Lightning uh, rod. Yeah, lightning rod, you know, because it, it was a storm that had been brewing for 30 years. Yeah. And more, because let's not forget that before the 70s, when these conversations started, it was just really persecution by the church right. of of what we now know to be LGBTQIA plus persons. You know, we, we use an inclusive term to, to define because back then they were saying, oh, you're other, so we're going to, you know, I've, I know friends of mine that have endured shock therapy, for example. Oh. Uh, and so, as, so, so now I know, we know from your story at that general convention that from the time that before you were ordained, you know, two years before your ordination to the diaconate, you were out now as a lesbian or as, as gay, uh, I should say. You said you named yourself as we. 
And now you were then a priest and later a bishop. And how do you process all the events of the late 20th and early 21st, especially as we follow, you were elected six years after Bishop Jean was elected. Uh, and how has your ministry changed since then? Come back next week to hear Bishop Mary's response to this question and tune in for the rest of our conversation on LGBTQ plus inclusion in the Episcopal Church. Don't forget to follow the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thank you for joining us today. I'm Kyle Martindale, and all are welcome at Episcopal Priest Explains.